Welcome to the Back in Business podcast with Mickey Clark and Liz Barkley, both freelance business journalists. And both longing for Independence Day when some of the pubs will be serving up again. I say some because we won't all be able to make it safe to an open pub, so don't think think customers will come out to play. And uh, other businesses that have got the go-ahead are in the same quandary, Mickey. Will the customers come out to play? Yeah, the, the hospitality industry, um, Liz, basically is, is one of those that's really going to suffer. Um, some pubs are just too small for for even a metre distancing, let alone two metre distancing. Others have you know, opened up marquees in their gardens to bring in customers, serve meals. Great in July. Let's shiver in November and see how we get on. Um, but planning rules have been lifted too, haven't they? So that we don't have to wait to get planning for a marquee. Uh, you know, there will be street cafes, all sorts. Um, but as you say, <laughs> I don't want to wait till November and see what the weather's like. No, that's right. That, and that's the problem. It's, it's a race against time as much as anything. So this is going to give them, you know, in, from July 4th, it's all underway. We, we're booked into a local pub on July the 4th, but it's going to be in a marquee out the back. Um, I'm sure that's going to be great. Um, but they know that as the weather deteriorates later in the year, if we've still got these conditions, then a lot of them are going to uh, suffer. They're just not going to get the money coming in. Well, I'm not coming to join you on the 4th because you didn't invite me. Um, but I am buying. So what's yours? Oh, you you can come as long as you buy well, one. Well, I said I'm buying. What's oh, yours? Miracles do happen then. <laughs> um, our business editor Declan Curry is here. Declan, it is a big day in England on the fourth of July, um, but not the same for Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales because they've got different dates. Uh, yes, uh, as always, uh, as uh, throughout this uh, whole coronavirus crisis, there have been different rules in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. I'll come to those in a second. Uh, Boris Johnson is describing this as the end of our great national hibernation. The big thing for the pubs is that the distance that customers have to keep between them has been cut to one metre. The pubs say that makes a difference between staying in business and going out of business. Under two metres, it's thought that only 30% of customers could fit in. Under one metre social distancing, they estimate that 70% of uh, the previous number of customers can now be served. But there is a big challenge for the pubs in that they've been told they must collect and store the details of customers in case these customers have to be traced. Now, that's okay for restaurants because they're used to people ringing up in advance and making a reservation and recording that. It's more of an issue for pubs where we're used to just walking in off the street. By the way, this great reopening in England doesn't mean that coronavirus is gone. It just means that there is a bed for you intensive care if you were to require it. Now, in Scotland, uh, from next Monday, the 29th of June, stores with outdoors entrances and exits can reopen, but that doesn't include indoor shopping centres unless they have certain essential shops. Pubs and restaurants will be allowed to open outdoor spaces in Scotland on the 6th of July. They'll be able to open indoors on the 15th of July. In Wales, there are no immediate plans to reopen uh, pubs, but that may well be reviewed on the 10th of July accommodation hotels and B&Bs can open with certain restrictions from the 13th of July. Hairdressers in Wales will also reopen on the 13th of July. 
In Northern Ireland, the social distancing will be reduced to one metre from this Monday, the 29th of June. Hotels, pubs, restaurants and cafes will open a day earlier than England on the 3rd of July. The bookies will also open on the 3rd of July. Spas and massage parlours on the 6th, indoor gyms on the 10th. Uh, libraries on the 16th of July and perhaps most excitingly of all for the Curry household, bingo halls reopening on the 29th of July in Northern Ireland. House. If I want to know anything De- about Declan, dates, I'm going to ask I mean, you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he was very good, very efficient <laughs> on that. The thing is, though, that's all terribly confusing. Do you think it's great to have the four nations all having their own independence, but do you think Devolution has been a good idea throughout this crisis, or should all four nations be singing from that same hymn sheet? I don't know, Nicky, if you have a one-date-fits-all for everyone uh, on this. In fact, if anything, I I think we're going to see greater difference in dates in different parts of England, depending on how the outbreak ebbs and flows in different parts of the country. As part of the this great reopening, even in England, the government has made it pretty clear that if cases were to flare up in one part of the country, then lockdown rules could be reimposed. The reopening could be reversed in some parts of England, whilst pubs are allowed to stay open in other parts of England. This is only going to get more complex. Yeah, well, um, as you say, it's going to get more complex. And I think that, uh, you know, the rules are going to keep changing too, are they not? Uh, They may do, again, depending on uh, the course of the uh, outbreak. And that's the critical thing, that the government is taking a risk here. There is a balancing risk between uh, the coronavirus infection rate rising, as it has done in the United States this week. We've seen record numbers of new cases across Texas, California, and the south and west of the U.S. that's making some states over there reverse their easing of the lockdown. Government's running the risk of cases flaring up again here in the U.K. as uh, businesses are reopened. But the longer the businesses were kept shut, the greater the economic pain. So there is a balancing act here. And have you have you learnt from any of the businesses that you've spoken to in, in recent weeks um, that they're optimistic that Joe Public, the consumer, if you like, will be playing ball with all this because there are going to be a lot of people who just want to go for a casual pint who probably won't be prepared to keep registering in every pub they walk into um, or waiting or have table service or have restricted access to other customers. Um, it's not going to have the same ring to it, is it? And it's not just the inconvenience of it, Mickey, it's the fear. There will be a lot of customers who will think, I'm not sure that it's safe for me to go to the pub, to go to the restaurant. And that the theory is this, that people who are who appear to be more at risk of coronavirus infection are people who are older. Who are the people who've got the money to spend in restaurants, in pubs, day in, day out? It's older people. And that's the uh, fear on the part of some economists, that the very people that could really boost the hospitality industry are those that might stay away because of fears about their own health. Um, This is an awful dilemma for anybody trying to make these kind of decisions. I uh, I can't imagine how difficult. I'm just pleased I'm not in politics. But Simon McVicker, our public affairs director, is here. Simon, how do you think the various UK governments working out these dates and when to open how what's what's going into these equations 
Well, I think Declan uh, has put his finger on it. Uh, the virus is at different stages in different parts of the country, and so therefore the um, devolved governments are reacting um, to the fact that uh, they're slightly behind, especially southern England, in the development of the virus. But I do also think uh, the devolved governments have been much more risk averse. And I, I think there is a little bit of concern um, that the British, the English government, British government is um, uh, being a bit reckless. And they're all getting the same advice. They're all, they're all seeing the same scientific evidence, but the uh, British government's pushing forward with the, the um, the easing of the lockdown, and I think that's because they're under severe pressure from certain sectors of the economy. If you don't open now, you're heading for economic disaster. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it does seem to be the economy that's dictating the pace. So who's putting the pressure on? Who's putting the pressure on the British government? Well, I, I think you'll find that uh, the British government are talking to um, the, the businesses, but they're also focus grouping and, 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 and surveying people's reactions. And, um, you know, there, there was something in the papers last week saying they're spending millions on serving people and getting their attitude. So they're being very much led by what they think the public wants. And Simon, if, if there are outbreaks, as, as Declan touched upon earlier in the country, is it going to be easy to shut down different parts of the country and still keep the economy going? Are people going to be willing to be shut down again and put into lockdown? Well, there's a very interesting experiment going on in Germany at the moment where they've shut down a city where one of the outbreaks around an abattoirs happened and they put them right back into lockdown. Now, uh, the Germans may, much, may be a lot more obedient than the British, as we're seeing uh, from Bournemouth yesterday. But um, I, I think uh, governments across the world are looking at the, the idea of locking down certain areas and saying this area is back to where we were and people are not allowed to go into it. Uh, who knows whether it's going to work or not? Um, the British people are saying they want to, to observe all the rules, but there is definitely a minority who, who are determined to break them as well. Thanks, Simon. Um what about you, the public? Are you getting back to work, getting ready to get back to work or, or worrying about whether you'll have a viable business left to go back to or even relishing the opportunities? Um, email us at contact us at bikingbusiness.org.uk. Visit the website, find us on LinkedIn or we're on Twitter at business underscore backing. Now, throughout this COVID pandemic, reports have suggested that Although men are worse affected health-wise in general, women will bear the brunt of the work crisis. Um, it seems that there are around 600,000 solo self-employed women, uh, mothers in the UK. So that's one in eight of all solo self-employed people are working mothers. Now, that is a, quite a large figure, and we've got three women here to talk to us about all of this. Uh, Professor Julia Rice of Manchester Business School, who has two children and is co-chair of the Gender and Enterprise Network. Uh, Sarah Pinch, Managing Director of Pinpoint Communications from Bristol, who is a five-year-old. And Caroline Sargent, Director at Bounce Coaching and Development, a limited company who has three boys. 
eight, three and one. Um, if we're talking about working mothers here, Julia, you've done a lot of research. What's the impact on women running their own businesses? And is it better or worse than for employed women with children? Hi, Liz. I think it's much worse for women who are self-employed. The research would show us that women's um, freedom to invest their time in their businesses is constantly up for negotiation in families, even before COVID. So they kind of have to do everything else and then make time for their businesses, unless they're stronger in negotiating at home. You add into that so-called homeschooling, and, and I think that a lot of uh, men in employment with partners who are uh, women who, who are self-employed mothers are going to be basically relying on those women. And I'm really concerned that mother-led businesses are going to be the collateral damage of COVID-19. Julia, you, you've, you're faced with lack of boardroom representation, unequal pay. Does Do those same problems apply amongst enterprising women who run their own businesses or freelancers or is this a completely new different ball game and how much impact or how much leverage do you think you're going to be able to get on their behalf and what are the problems they face well we have a massive gender gap in entrepreneurship um of the five million self-employed in the uk 1.6 million are women so you can see 3.3 million are men that's a mammoth difference we have seen a massive growth in women's self-employment since the last recession. I don't know if people are fully aware that we came out of the last recession. Jobs were created in self-employment almost exclusively until 2014, which asks us important questions around how we're going to get out of this recession. A lot of those jobs came from women entering self-employment, but there's also a real worry there. For me, there was a problem prior to COVID around the quality of that self-employment. But I'll give you a really scary statistic. Women who work full-time in employment earn 76% more than women who work full-time in self-employment. So that's a pretty shocking figure and one that perhaps we haven't discussed as a country enough. And... Uh... <laughs> I mean, what basically can you do to put that right? Well, the two particular challenges that exist under COVID all go back to the fact we haven't got gender aware policy. One is, I just think it's shocking that the Chancellor uh, closed schools without putting in any mitigating measures to work out how mothers predominantly are going to cope with their job and and that's all the higher for self-employed mothers who don't have an, uh, a boss to turn to to negotiate with the other issue we have is that women work in sectors that are more affected by the crisis because they tend to do more sort of embodied work whilst we might think about more sort of glamorous end of freelancing the most uh, concentrated air sectors for women self-employed are childcare, hair and beauty and domestic and care services so you can see that they're some of the sectors that have come back last. What we've done is work, pulled together the best academics and all the best um, agencies working around women's enterprise. We've formed something called the Women's Enterprise Policy Group and put a statement, an open letter out to the Chancellor to say, please bring us to the policy table because to avoid catastrophe, you need to develop a more gender aware policy moving forwards. And, and do you think it's going to be a problem for a lot of businesses that are run by 
female entrepreneurs or freelancers who find themselves going bust because not only have they got to run a business, but they've got to look after the children. If they're not at school through till September, that's going to be a problem, is it? That's that's virtually the whole summer wiped out. And I'm not convinced they'll be back in September. I'm not convinced. One of the pieces of work that working mothers do is to coordinate nurseries, schools, work and other care or, or family routines. That piece of work tends to fall to women. We don't know when our children are going to be in school which days they're going to be in school, how long they're going to be in school. And that makes going back to business extremely difficult. So one of the things we need most of all is realistic planning and realistic understanding about when particular children are going to be in school so that women can commit themselves to trading on particular days. Okay, let's, let's bring in uh, Caroline Sargent now, who runs her own company, Bounce. Good name, Caroline. What exactly is it you do? Thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm an executive coach and with Bounce, I work with individuals and organisations to help them have more energy and spark in what they do. And actually, it's very relevant at this point in time because it's also helping them build their resilience and bounce back as well. So from a personal perspective, I'm kind of having to practice what I preach quite a lot. And, and you, at this you've point got three in time. children. Um, are you sharing parental duties have, or yes. are you stuffed, basically? Um, probably more of the latter. Um, so um, partly sharing. Um, my other half is a key worker, though. So he's out most of the time. Um, so childcare has come down to me. Um, and because of their ages, it's quite varied. So I've got an eight year old that I'm homeschooling um, that initially I loved because I used to want to be a teacher. I now really would never want to be a teacher. I have so much respect for his teachers. Um, I also have um, a just turned three year old um, who we've been potty training. So another exciting adventure during lockdown and a one year old. So if it was only the eight-year-old, maybe it would be a little bit easier because I can put him down to do some of his schoolwork, his online learning. I can't do that with a one-year-old and a three-year-old. So trying to get that balance right has been really, really tough. Really tough. Can we bring uh, Sarah Pinch in at this point too, Mickey, and let's hear what both Caroline and Sarah think of what uh, Julia's had to say. Sarah, you're uh, a running Pinchpoint Communications and you've got a five-year-old. Presumably, you're hearing, uh, you're thinking and agreeing with some of the things Caroline said. But what do both of you think about what Julia said and what Julia's research has thrown up? I think it's outrageous. I mean, I'm really, um, I've done a lot of research about why women don't get into the boardroom. Um, and that's pretty hard uh, hard-hitting in terms of the discrimination that they experience, uh, the decisions that are made about them and not with them, uh, the ability for uh, the men who who could, you know, step aside and, and support women to come into the boardroom and are not doing that. But I think the, the entrepreneurial research is, is new to me, Julia, and really is quite alarming. Um, I think that this period of COVID-19, I was, I was out walking with a girlfriend this morning and I was saying, you know, actually, I'm really, really worried about the long tail of, of the mental health issues of working mums. You know, I have never, ever wanted to be a stay at home mum ever. I went back to work when my daughter was four months old, been really well supported by my husband and been in a, a privileged position of being able to pay for childcare. But now I am a stay at home mum who is still running my own business. And, you know, we've we've got three new clients in lockdown, businesses going really well, and I am utterly exhausted. 
Caroline, you're nodding. I am, yes. I, I, I absolutely agree with that mental well-being. I think there's, um, I love the word that Julia used earlier about negotiation. Life has really felt like a negotiation over the past few months. And as a, as a mum, grab every minute I can when the kids are sleeping or it's nap time to just try and catch up with my business. Um, and working through the night, I'm sure many mums are doing that at this point in time, just oh, yeah. to try and keep their business moving. And that really concerns me because in my head, I was working to maybe the summer holidays and thinking schools might go back just before. There's an end in sight. Now I was working till September. There's a new end in sight. But as, as you've said, I don't think that's going to happen either. So how long is this sustainable for mums to try and balance so many things at the same time? And Julia, you know, when you think of all the the sort of publicity we've seen backing from the royal family about mental health with people mental health in the workplace issues um we shouldn't really be having this conversation should we we shouldn't homeschooling is a word that we need to resist homeschooling is a feminist issue it's a piece of work that's being given to women on top of other jobs in top of triple amounts of jobs they're already doing and we need women to come forward and say, we're not doing this. And the reality is, it isn't happening in a lot of households, but women are carrying a lot of guilt. So that's another burden that a lot of women are ca carrying. The fact is that we're keeping these children safe until they go back to school. We could have done with a, a kind of paternity leave, couldn't we? A COVID paternity leave to try and iron out the gender inequalities that are really have arisen in households. A use it or lose it men stay at home for a while and give women a chance to work because we know that they're not women aren't necessarily winning at home in this negotiation um julia well, you talk about negotiation but let me just ask caroline and sarah you know what do you think about that whole point about negotiation how hard do you try what do you get what kind of pushback do you get when you do negotiate i am um... I know that I'm in a very fortunate position in that I have an enormously supportive husband um, and we have absolutely split our time 50-50. I mean, literally done a morning shift, an afternoon shift. Um, and I, But I also have a number of friends and colleagues who are desperately not able to negotiate. That might be because their partner's employment is precarious and they're having to make sure that they're working really hard and working harder than normal. It might be because their partner's a key worker. Um, but I think that there are many, many women who are really struggling. And, you know, I think the government has been woeful in its support for working mothers. Uh, and I think it's going to be a catastrophic. I mean, I, I really do think we are heading for a really major issue, not just in terms of the economy and, and those all, those uh, companies going bust, but I, in terms of mental health of women. You know, I'm a runner. I run with an amazing group called This Mum Runs, and we can't do that. And we are so worried about the women who rely on, you know, coming together with a group of other women to chat and run. You know, we do that every Sunday, every Wednesday, 20,000 women across the country. And it's really concerning to us and we're very worried about the mental health of those women in our community and then you you know I live in Bristol I've got a lovely house with a nice garden I don't live in a tower block where I've got to go out to work every day because that's what's being demanded of me and there's no childcare support there's no safety net so I think the 
issue of negotiation is really important, but I think there are many women who have no one to negotiate with. Car- I'd, I'd second that yeah, as well. I was going to ask mm-hmm. you, Caroline, what, what shape your business is in after taking into account all these pressures since the start of the um, COVID-19? So- it's it's getting a little bit better, um, but that's because I've significantly changed what my business is about. Um, so prior prior to COVID, I was doing a lot of leadership training, leadership coaching with large organisations, and literally overnight, first week of March, everything went. And I'd just come back from maternity leave um, at that point, so I was banking on the fact that the second half of the year was going to be good to make up for the fact I'd been on maternity. Um, So everything got cancelled. So probably for about a month's period, I was in a bit of a panic about, well, companies aren't investing. They're not investing. They don't have the money to invest in training. So everything was cancelled from that perspective. So I spent a few weeks really panicking about, well, what do I do? Have I done the right thing even being self-employed in the first place? and because of being a director of a limited company, I fell through all the cracks. I know people on your podcast have talked about that before. Unfortunately, I was in that group where there wasn't any support financially available to me. Um, so what I've done is if kind of refocus what my business is about. So I'm now doing more work supporting people who are being made redundant, which unfortunately is another situation that we're facing right now in the UK. Um, so looking at how you support people to build their confidence, their well-being that we've talked about, build their self-esteem back up um, and help shift their mindset to a more positive place. So hopefully at some point as there's more available in the job market, they're ready for that. Um, but my business will be very different. I've had to go very digital. Um, I hid from that in the past, to be honest. Um, I didn't really need to do it. Didn't really want to go there and learn all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I've had to learn many, many um, things very I, quickly just to just, survive as a business and be able to compete going can forward. Can I just ask um, about but I'm still the point really... about maternity? Because I've read a report yesterday which says that there are an awful lot of women who are off on maternity at the moment who are terrified about what's going to happen to them when they try to restart their businesses. They try to look back, uh, get back their contracts that they had before they went on maternity. Julia, how big a problem do you reckon that is? Yeah, it's a huge problem. I've done quite a lot of research on uh, how entrepreneurs cope with maternity. And there's a a range of issues. First of all, the health and safety during pregnancy, because the health and safety protection regulation around self-employed women and work is very unclear. And I'm concerned that self-employed women will out of desperation do unsafe work. Secondly, once we know that women tend to come back from maternity leave very early, usually touching bases of business within two weeks of having a baby. Often they are doing that, uh, relying on grandparent care, which is something they can't do at the moment. The reason they come back early is because their business legitimacy is very much sort of questioned in many circles by their pregnancy. So they have to come back early and reassure customers that they're still around. That is particularly difficult. The transition back to work for all women after having a baby right now is so complex. And we do know that helplines like uh, Working Families, Pregnant Then Screwed, ACAS are getting huge amounts of calls from nervous pregnant women who are really nervous about working while pregnant and unsure about how they're going to return to work. And I am really worried that we're going to have 
maybe two, maybe three cohorts, if you like, of pregnant women who don't make a successful transition back. And we know that that has lifelong effects on careers. This is a really pivotal point. This is where the gender pay gap starts when somebody has a baby. That's what all the evidence tells us. And it's particularly more complicated for the self-employed. And yet the self-employment income support scheme had, it, it isn't taking into account pregnancy periods in the past when it's assessing income over three years. And in fact, Pregnant and Screwed is taking the Chancellor to court over this with a range of uh, supportive lawyers because we believe that he's defying the Equalities Act. But I hope this you know, helps to show that we haven't got a good gender-aware policy. I'm not convinced the policymakers are thinking about and care enough about these kinds of issues at the moment that are affecting thousands of women. Um, this is the lack of women at the top coming home to roost, is it not? <laughs> I can see on Zoom that Sarah and Caroline are nodding. Um, but Sarah, seriously, you've done a lot of work around getting women into the boardroom. This is, we're reaping now what we've seen. We absolutely are. And I think that there are, you know, there is a woeful lack of women in leadership positions, particularly in the boardroom, particularly in executive positions in the boardroom. And, you know, I'm a great supporter of the work that the 30% Club has done, but most of those appointments in the in the FTSE 250 are non-executive appointments. Now, I'm a non-executive for the Health and Safety Executive, and I, and I love that work, and it's important work but I am not making the day-to-day -day policy decisions those are being made by the executives and most of those are white men and we still have a major major problem and one of the things that I am passionate about is why don't organizations implement something like the Rooney rule in the United States where you must employ a qualified and competent black man to become a coach in the National Football League and I would lobby I am lobbying very hard for organizations to consider something called <laughs> the Rosie rule which is the name of my daughter which is interview a competent and qualified woman for every senior leadership position in your organization this is not favoritism they are competent they are qualified and if they don't get the job give them some really uh, serious coaching and mentoring so that next time they do um i can hear in my in my head a lot of women sitting uh, listening to this thinking hang on a minute i'm running a business i don't have any children but what gives you, who have made the choice to have children, uh, the right to tell me who has perhaps not uh, you know, made the choice not to have children or not been able to have children or whatever their circumstances have dictated, uh, that you are worse off in this current market than I am? This argument rages around workplaces all over the place. <laughs> I don't I don't think I am saying that, Liz. I, I think that, you know, we opened our bubble uh, last Friday to a single friend of ours, very successful career woman who has had all kinds of struggles in this situation. She's immensely social. Uh, she hates cooking. You know, she's not been allowed to go out. Um, she hasn't been able to see anybody. You know, we hugged for a good five minutes and she, you know, her mental health has been very severely impacted by this. So I am not for one moment saying that that I am worse off than, than women who, who have children, who can't have children, who desperately want children, who are single, who are married, who, you know, I think everybody is really struggling in this situation. 
yeah, I think it's just worth making that point, Caroline. Yeah, I'd absolutely echo that as well, because I think it sometimes becomes almost a bit of an excuse or a stigma that I'm a mum and then people don't hear what you have to say then because they almost think you're hiding behind the fact you're a mum and you can't do things because you've got the children. But absolutely, I think I have many friends who don't have children. I have many friends who have grown up children. And initially, I was looking at them as they were getting a lovely suntan in the garden on furlough, thinking my life is so different. But they have different challenges and stresses and different things that they've got to work through and cope with as well. Um, all I can compare is how does my life and my well-being feel now compared to how it felt before COVID? And what can I do for myself and my family to make sure that when we come out of it, whenever that is, we're in a good place, both financially and from a mental well-being as well? Liz, can I come in on that as well? Yes, of course. Uh, my, you know, my position on that is that we were all mothered and we will all be looked after when we're older by a generation that pe women are producing and caring for right now. And if COVID has taught us anything, surely it is that care is a social good. It is not just a private matter. I think that's a very strong point uh, on uh, which to possibly end this. Mickey, I thought you wanted to come in with a final point. I could hear you. I could see you going. Well, I, I just wanted to ask. I can see you going. Yeah, I'll do that anyway. Um, I think I wanted to ask all three ladies very quickly. Do they do they agree with you know quotas at the top in the ballroom? I, so I to speak? have always said that I don't, um, because I think that there is a danger of favoritism of people thinking that that woman is only on that board because someone set a target. I think it's about how do we interview? How do we advertise jobs? You know, there are loads and loads of appointments, Mickey, that go nowhere near what you and I would recognise as any sort of recruitment policy or process. You know, someone's tapped up for it. Someone's given the nod at the golf club. Absolutely jobs for the boys. But jobs I do boys. think if we can get to a point where on mm. every single interview there is a competent and qualified woman who is interviewed, then I think we will start to see difference. And Caroline? I'd agree, absolutely. And I think it's about helping women earlier on in their careers get to those opportunities. So if they're having breaks because of maternity, they're able to come back at the same level, if not higher, to what they were before. Um, and helping them feel more confident when they get to those interviews to be more successful of getting those jobs as well. Finally, Julia, don't hang back. Go on, Parlin. <laughs> <laughs> well, my view is that every board on an annual basis should be looking at some milestones around equality. So think about Black Lives Matter as well. They should be seriously looking at their gender pay gap and they should be seriously looking at their leadership representation, not just in the board, but across the organisation. But that needs to go along with some cultural work, which helps them to understand, that helps everybody to understand that if there is inequality, that is because of an organisational systemic problem. That is not because of uh, individual women. This is a problem for the organisation to uh, resolve. If you put the cultural change alongside the target, Bob, your uncle, will actually get somewhere. Can I, uh, just before we leave you, can I just ask you one quick question? Uh, what is the one thing that you want to see that will help you get your business back to thriving after this. Now, I know, Sarah, you're busy, um, but 
What is the one thing you think that really is needed to get business back in business? I think there needs to be a really serious think about how we care for our children and how the government can support that. So I employ a number of women who have children. I would like to pay for their childcare and there is no benefit for me. I can't do that in a, in a efficient way for them or for me. And I would really like to be able to do that. And I think that we need to think really hard. I think Julia's absolutely right. You know, care is not a private matter. It is for the social good. It is an enabler for business. And, you know, there is, I don't think there's anyone in government at the moment that understands what an enormous impact it would make on the economy and on the mental health of, of women uh, if they looked at some really meaningful changes to how childcare is funded and what's able for business to support that. Caroline? Caroline, one, one thing? So one it's hard to find one isn't it um so <laughs> i know absolutely with with childcare because i am in a situation where i need to be earning in order to send my children to nursery but i can't do that it's kind of chicken and egg um i think there's a broader thing for me in my business which is aside from supporting me it's how the government can support my clients and the organizations that i work with um so where many people are still coming back from furlough or there's many redundancies for my business to thrive, I need those organizations to have the funds to be able to invest in the well-being of their staff. And I'm not sure how they're going to find the funds to do that at a point when that is absolutely critical for the well-being of everybody returning to work. So I'd love to see some sort of commitment from the government to, to do more of that. And Julia, of course, you've written to the Chancellor, as you said, um, you want more urgent action to support women's enterprise. Uh, and you've said, we're not all in this together. Um, but what is the one thing you would love the Chancellor to come back with? It's still plugging those gaps in the self-employment and sports scheme. And it's still giving directors proper compensation because I am really worried about huge array of business failure and poverty and economic decline that's going to come from the gaps in those schemes and I do think they're gendered as well there are reasons why I think that women will lose out more particularly the gaps in the self-employment income support scheme because they're more likely to have part-time and new businesses. Well, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much to Julia Rouse, a professor at Manchester Met Business School, Sarah Pinch uh, of Pinchpoint Communications and Caroline Sargent, director at Bounce. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. Um, any final thoughts? Well, we've been talking a lot this morning about, yeah, we've been talking a lot about children this morning. So let's get a final word from Declan and Simon. <laughs> you rat bag. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> This this has been this has been such a fascinating this has been such a fascinating discussion because for a long time the argument went that you have inequalities in the workplace because of structural failures within the corporate structure and they do exist but the flip side of that was that enterprise would be the great leveler that women and men would be able to perform and achieve and have opportunity that was equal if they were running businesses for themselves. What the coronavirus crisis has showed us is that inequality exists there too. They, the cause of this 
is social structure and social norms deep within society, not just uh, the corporate structure as well. So we have to think much more deeply about this than many of us have done so in the past. As for the week ahead, this week is going to be busy, 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 pubs and restaurants getting ready for reopening, letting the great unwashed and unclean back through their doors Speak again. for yourself. Great business for people. <laughs> That's all I ever he do. Is. People who um, People who make plastic screens are going to find this uh, a boom time, but we will be watching carefully the rates of infections and seeing what happens to that, because that's what will determine economic performance in the future. Uh, Simon, are you still with us? Any final point you'd like to yes, add? Yes, I am. I think the childcare point is very powerful. I think that it is uh, a campaign issue that I think if we got our act together, we could make some progress on because I think within government and within parliament, there would be a, a very big audience for, for the messages we're saying today. Love the idea of the Rosie Law. I think that's something we should campaign on. So, you know, these, these are, are not impossible goals. And I think people are talking about them in parliament, but I think we need to get ourselves organized a little bit more around them. Well. Let's do that then. Um, if you'd like to put your two penny worth in, um, then contact us at uh, by email. Contact us at backinbusiness.org.uk. Find us on the website and LinkedIn, and you can find us on Twitter at business underscore backin. Next week we'll be recording on the eve of the reopening, and we'll be hearing about some of the preparations of some of the business people we've featured on the podcast already. How are they going to get? fully back in business. Thank you to everybody and see you then.